Have you ever been told that you're musically gifted because your family's just like that? It's a genetic thing, kind of like my high cholesterol. Thanks, family. Well, what if there was a serial killer gene? Welcome to another episode of The Unlovely Truth. I'm your host, private investigator Lori Morrison. Join me for another captivating true crime story where physical, spiritual, and emotional safety takeaways are waiting for us. If you're listening to me right now, I believe you have a unique calling to become a different kind of PI. Not a typical private investigator, but a person of impact. This is season four, episode 29. The book I chose for this week is The Murder Gene, and we're so blessed to have its author, Karen Spears Zacharias, with us today. One thing I find so fascinating about this story is that while growing up, the killer and his victim both had their strongest social connections in their churches. They both had parents who wanted to shield their children from evil as much as that is possible. Luke Chang's family had been on the foreign mission field and his father even pastored a church. Though that didn't last long and nobody really seemed to want to talk about why. Amy Jane's family was also a very typical family and very active in their church. So where did everything go wrong? Luke did have something else in his background that was unique. His grandfather, Gene, attacked two teenage girls with the intent to kidnap and sexually assault them. Now, the girls did manage to get away from him, or he probably would have killed them, like he already had 24-year-old Nancy Laws. He managed to get a sweet plea deal and only served 10 years in prison. When he was released, he went to live with his daughter, who just happened to be Luke Chang's mother. Did the genes passed on from his grandfather or the influence his grandfather had on him while they lived in the same house play a bigger role in shaping Luke into a killer? Luke's parents were extremely conservative and adhered to a strict fundamentalist lifestyle. They were heavily influenced by Pastor Jack Hiles, whose own ministry was tarnished with allegations of financial misappropriation and doctrinal errors, as well as a sex scandal involving the wife of one of Hiles' deacons. Luke's mother was very protective, maybe overly protective, of her two children. Luke's sister remembers a childhood that didn't involve much contact with other children, which Luke didn't really seem to mind. He was content retreating into books. Right after high school, he enlisted in the Marines. You wouldn't think that seemed to be a great fit for a bookish kid, but getting expelled from his high school for hacking into a teacher's computer limited his options. It was in the Marines that Luke met Casey Byrams, who would become his best friend. They were as opposite as two people could possibly be. But the one thing they both had in common was that they ended up in the Marines because they'd been in trouble in high school. Casey's issue was drugs. He also had a serious girlfriend, and together they set Luke up with a friend of theirs. Luke told all of his new friends that it was his faith in Jesus that kept him from cussing or drinking or having sex before marriage. It's too bad it didn't keep him from killing someone. Luke's new friend Casey introduced him to all of the things that Luke's mother had tried to shelter him from. The men were transferred to California, and before they went, Casey married his girlfriend, Megan. She then convinced her friend Desiree to move to the coast with them all. The four of them partied and used a lot of drugs. Desiree tended to stay the closest to sober because she had a lot of health problems. Luke desperately wanted her to be his girlfriend, but she just wasn't interested. Until she realized that if they got married, she'd have access to military health care. 
She didn't seem worried at all about how being used that way could affect Luke. Just like Casey didn't worry about the effects of the drugs they were all using. Those same drugs that he overdosed on and died. Something inside of Luke seemed to die with Casey. None of them had known how the drugs, the turmoil inside of Luke, and maybe even a murder gene inherited from his grandfather would also affect a young woman named Amy Jane Brandhagen. Amy Jane was just 19 and trying to make it on her own. But paying bills was harder than Amy Jane had thought it would be, so she took a second job as a maid at the Travel Lodge in Pendleton, Oregon. That's where Luke saw her, stalked her, and murdered her. Investigators who responded to the scene could tell that Amy Jane had been beaten, strangled, and stabbed several times right around her heart. Stranger murders are rare. Depending on the study that you read, they account for either just over or just under 10% of all killings. So detectives began the process of interviewing and investigating the people in Amy Jane's life. She was an outgoing young woman who would talk to anyone, according to her family. Once police eliminated those close to her, they had to consider that maybe this was a crime committed by a stranger. With no video surveillance footage available, they had little to go on. They kept an eye on the crowd at Amy Jane's memorial service to see if the killer just might show up. He did, but they didn't notice him. Luke was good at being quiet and just blending in. Luke enjoyed being at the service, knowing that he was the reason for it all. He'd spent most of his life being controlled by others, but now he was in control. He stayed in control of himself for nearly a year, with the investigation going nowhere. But then the desire to exert the ultimate control over life and death, just like God, returned. He watched another woman to see if she was vulnerable, and when he decided she was, he attacked her. Just like his grandfather, his second attempt at murder was, thankfully, unsuccessful. To find out what happened to Luke and to see if Amy Jane got justice, grab a copy of The Murder Gene, A True Story by Karen Spears Zacharias. Now let's check in with her to find out what she learned as she was researching this book. Karen, thank you again for joining us. This is such a fascinating topic. I can't wait to dive in. Yeah, I'm very excited to be a guest and thank you for inviting me. I have to ask, first of all, how did you get interested in this particular story? I started out my career as a journalist in a town here in Oregon on my 40th birthday. Awesome. So I'm kind of a late bloomer to everything, I think. But part of my beat as a reporter was covering crime, courts and cops, is what it was called. Over a course of time, I began writing books and left the newsroom. This is actually a second true crime book. And in both cases, I knew the victims. So it's not oh. like I wanted to write true crime. That was not where I started. I started with memoirs. But when you're a journalist and you have a relationship with people and those people are harmed, it seems an obligation or a responsibility to address the wrongs that were done. And so in this particular case, I knew Amy Jane Brandhagen, the victim. Her parents and I were in the same Bible study group 
in our home, we attended the same church and my daughters on occasion babysat for Amy Jane. So I kind of watched her grow up in that close way that church people do. And then later on in that way, community people do. When I heard that she had been murdered, I immediately set up an appointment with our local police chief that I knew from my other work as a reporter and my other true crime book. We sat down and had coffee and I asked him if he thought there was a story here and he said he did. I waited until there was an arrest made before I began to pursue it further. There sure is a story here, and there's so much. I really encourage people to go get a copy of the book, because today we're just going to kind of focus in on one aspect of it. This genetic component is so fascinating. So in really, really simple terms, because I am not a scientist by any stretch of the imagination, Tell us about this MAO-A gene, or what they call the warrior gene or the murder gene. There has been quite a bit of research into it over the years. We're loath to talk about something like a murder gene because of our history with eugenics in this Mm. society, and with good reason, we should be careful. I'll explain it to you the way it was explained to me by a professor at Florida State, which is he said that his father had had diabetes. And so genetically, he was predisposed to diabetes. Now, that didn't mean that he would have diabetes because he could control his lifestyle, what he ate, exercise. That's not always the case with everyone with diabetes, but in his case, that was true. And so he said it's the same with the MAOA gene. There are factors that can come into play, but there are people who are born with a genetic propensity toward violence in the same way that there are people genetically predisposed to diabetes or arthritis or cancer or any of the other medical things that can plague us. It depends a lot on the external factors, how those genes will respond in a time of stress. So it's definitely a tendency and not a certainty. If a person has this gene, there are other things like childhood trauma, drug abuse. Uh, I, I would think even being around people that are encouraging your more negative tendencies and just having a lack of coping skills, like you kind of alluded to when you're under stress, not coping with it in a healthy way, but letting kind of that biological tendency run wild. I want to make sure people know that there's hope. <laughs> it's not yeah. it's not dest- it's not destiny for sure. No, there's no destiny in this. And it occurred to me that we're always proud when we see some genetic trait that we admire in our children, our grandchildren, and when they acknowledge that that trait came from the mother or the grandmother or the father and the grandfather, we're always keen to do that. But if it's a negative trait, 
right? How many times have we said to our husbands, that came from your side of the family? (laughs) So we, we are keen to accept the good when we see it reflected in offspring, but we are loath to give that same weight to negative traits in uh, characteristics that biologically come to them, right? Yeah. We we don't want to say, oh, well, you cut that temper, right? So obviously, if you have a child that has a temper, you probably recognize it. And the way you deal with that will either exasperate that temper or teach that child self-control over that temper. You make a great point, though, when you talk about if a child has certain tendencies I think we like to kind of put blinders on and say, oh, well, that's that's going to resolve itself. Oh, that'll be better when they're older and more mature and whatever. But if you look at this case specifically with all the factors in Luke's life, not only did he have a grandfather who had committed murder, that grandfather then came to live with them when he was released. So there's no way of knowing exactly what kind of influence he had on Luke, you know, stories he told him or things he tried to teach him. He had a, a very restrictive religious background with a lot of shame and guilt and rules and a very, very restrictive mother trying. And I think she did it out of good motivations. I'm going to shelter my children from the world. Right. But but then once he went into the Marines and got out into the world, he had no concept of how to handle things. And so when he met up with Casey, Casey's drug use, it, it all just kind of came together in a perfect storm for Luke. And I'm not trying to say that that means he has no personal responsibility. No. I think I think we all still do. But as outsiders looking in, it's easy for us to go, oh, yeah, this is a disaster waiting to happen. So what do we do with our friends, our family, people we see in church? How do we step in and, and try to make a difference and, and give people those coping skills, those, you know, hey, drug use, you know, it seems like no big deal, but that could really have an effect on the way your genes express themselves. That's just not something most people are used to hearing. Yeah. And I think if we stepped in and said that drug abuse could be very bad for your gene expression, they might look at us <laughs> true, very scant. I thought a lot about Amy Jane, the victim, and Luke, the perpetrator, from the standpoint of their backgrounds were so similar. They both grew up with mothers who I believe were motivated by love but a love that expressed itself as fear. That is an important issue for me because I think that too often as Christians, we build a fence to protect our families. Then we get worried about one other thing. And so we build a fence inside of that fence. And then we keep building all these fences until we're just locked in a place of constant fear and worry. As a former crime reporter, that was pretty easy for me to do, raising my But I reached a point when they were, oh, headed into high school about that time, where I was like, this is really not living by faith. This is living Mm. by being afraid of everything. And I thought, this is not healthy. 
and I don't want to live like that. So I began to pray and ask God to not make my world smaller, but to make it larger. I love that. Fences down so that I didn't have fences anymore, right? Like I wanted an open arm approach to the world. And that certainly happened because of what I had gone through spiritually in my own life. I could see that Luke's mom and Amy Jane's mom were coming from that place I had first come from. They loved their kids. And I know in Luke's mom's case, she had been through a pretty traumatic childhood herself with her father being arrested for murder. You could see why she would build those fences. With Amy Jane's mom, Amy Jane was adopted. And I know that she just wanted that child so bad. She really wanted to protect her. And Amy Jane was an open-hearted, free spirit who loved everybody and, you know, was just a bright light in the community because of her open-heartedness. I often think that Luke and Amy Jane could have been the best of friends had they grown up next door to each other. They would have had so much to talk about in common. They're neurotic moms, you know, <laughs> and they really would have been good friends. But it didn't happen that way. Luke didn't actually know Amy Jane when he murdered her. He didn't know her at all, but he had stalked her. I look at that and I think, what were the components in Luke's life? And like you said, his grandfather did come to live there after only serving 10 years for a murder and a second attempted murder. But when I spoke with the family about that element of Luke's life, they denied, even his sister denied that Number one, that she even knew where her grandfather was in prison or that he had been in prison. Interesting. Yes, that was interesting to me because there is a book that I just think is one of the best and most insightful books out there about Christian behavior. And it's Scott Peck's. We know him for The Road Less Traveled, but he also wrote a book called The People of the Lie. It's an excellent book to look at how we deceive ourselves constantly in order to keep our own belief system intact. And so we began telling these lies. I know for a fact that his family knew what his grandfather had done because I found an audio of his mom giving her testimony at a church in which she called her father a murderer. And the kids were only teenagers when that testimony was given. I know that Leah did not tell me the truth about her grandfather. But for some reason or another, she needed to tell that lie to protect whatever things she was trying to protect, which I assume was Luke. I think that is a big problem in churches because we feel like we have to put on a front. But God already knows And God is bigger than any of our shames or our fears. For me, one of the big takeaways from this story is that we really need to be open, be honest, be willing to just call things what they are, and then help each other, support each other, and deal with them. 
in this country, a lot of our faith life is built on fear and always has been. So when we say we're living by faith, what we really mean is we're living by fear. And it's fear that that dominated the Puritan culture. When I hear about witches burning or hanging, I remind people there was never any such thing as a witch. They were always women hangings and women burning. And it's fear that motivated all of that. And it's fear that's directing the church today. And it's a fear of change a fear of others. And so we're always othering people nowadays. The rhetoric that's used in churches too often is based on a philosophy of fear. And it's so crazy because the Bible says hundreds of times, fear not, fear not, do not be afraid. Right. For, for I've given you the spirit of power, of love, and of sound mind. And I have to remind myself that all the time. Too often, I feel like as Christians, we don't approach anything with a sound mind. Making people afraid is a way we know this. To motivate people, you can inspire them. There have been people who reach for a message of hope and inspiration. But by and large, within the faith community, We've turned to fear and anger as our two primary motivating factors to move a crowd. Politicians use it and preachers use it. It it is a way to motivate people to do things. When you're afraid, you will take all kinds of extreme measures you wouldn't take if you were operating from a sound mind. That's such a great point. And I hope that's something that everybody will chew on and think about and and study the scriptures and see what they say. I want to ask you, you know, that was my favorite takeaway, but what was your biggest lesson that you really learned doing all of the background investigations and all the research and the interviews and everything you had to do to really get to the bottom of this story? As a reporter or as a writer, the first thing I had to do was FOIA the city attorney to see if I could have access to all the information, which I did. At that point, because I had a relationship with the police, they invited me into the police station, gave me a room and gave me all the materials to work with. At that point, the Luke Chang story was high profile here in Oregon because it was a year between when he killed Amy Jane and he did another attack on Karen Lang and then went on the lamb even after attacking Karen Lang before they could even pinpoint who this person was doing these killings or attempted killings. So it had been big news here in Oregon headline everywhere. And so I thought I knew the story. Dateline had already been here. They had already done the story. So I thought I had all the background on Luke that I needed to know. Marine goes AWOL from Camp Pendleton, comes from Pendleton, Oregon, kills this young girl. So I am going through these books and I come across the information on Casey Byrams from Cullman, Alabama. Now, there probably weren't two people in all of Pendleton who knew where Cullman, Alabama was, but I was one of them because I had been there numerous times. I had been there with my other true crime book and my faith-based books. 
I've been there to talk to churches and people. So I was kind of taken back, like, well, that's weird that there's somebody from Coleman, Alabama in all of this. And then there was just one little line I came across that said that Luke's grandfather had been in prison. And that had never been in any of the reporting. Dateline didn't do it. None of the newspapers mentioned it and didn't say why he was in prison. So I went to our police chief and I said, why was Luke's grandfather in prison? And he said, I didn't know he was. And I said, what's in one of the notes? And I said, can you find out for me? And he said he would. And he gave me a paragraph the next day. He had found just a two-paragraph story out of a paper in Wisconsin saying that Luke's grandfather had been arrested for murder and attempted murder. And I was dumbfounded. I just couldn't believe that that was something that you would miss in a story as high profile as this. Right. So I had started this book thinking I was just going to write about Luke and Amy Jane and tell the story of Amy Jane's murder because I knew her. And then here comes this component of a grandfather having committed murders some 40 years prior. Well, then, of course, as a person, I just sat back and went, wow, how unusual is that, that a grandfather and a grandson? would have committed murder, one of them knew. So Yeah, the parallels are striking. Yeah, the parallels alone. So for me, it really became about the questions of, is there a genetic component of violence? And if that component exists, what is my obligation as a member of society, as an educator, as a writer, as a neighbor? What is my obligation? Where do we then begin to intervene? And I, you know, I opened the book with that C.S. Lewis quote about inheritance and how some people just waste their good inheritance. For me, that was the the turning point, the learning point where I'm like, oh, my God, I need to know what this means for us as a people and as a community. And honestly, I expected to dig up all kinds of dirt on Luke. And the most surprising thing for me is how well people spoke about Luke. And how he didn't seem to be the kind of person we always paint. Adichie says there's a danger in the one story that we paint of people, right? Mm, yes. And I, I believe that there's a danger in the one story of Luke Chang. I don't think it's as cut and dry. Here's a monster who killed the good Christian girl. I just don't believe that that's a story that it's a myth. It's one we like to perpetuate, you know, always monster kills innocent girl. And that's how it always reads in the newspaper. But it's a far more complicated story than that, as most of our lives are. I think that that is something for us all to chew on. The people in our lives who have experienced traumas or seem to have difficulty coping with stresses and anger and, and they're, they have maladaptive ways of coping. Those are folks we need to reach out and, and help where we can, especially when they're young and yeah. we can still point them in a better way. So youth group leaders, 
pay attention. Yeah. <laughs> like they don't have enough to worry about. <laughs> True enough. I'm not, I'm not going to completely lay it on their feet. Yeah, yeah, Parents yeah. pay attention, neighbors, grandparents, really all of us. Yeah. Just pay attention. And if somebody needs some help, we've got to be willing to step up and, and give it when we can. Yeah. It was very insightful to talk to Luke's youth pastor because the picture that Luke's sister painted versus the picture that Luke's youth pastor painted were directly opposing viewpoints. You know, Leah painted a picture of a very isolated, very lonely Luke, whereas the youth pastor was like, this wasn't a guy who was sitting at the back of the roller coaster by himself, you know, he had friends, he had people, he was engaged. Now, again, I could go back to Scott Peck's book and say, well, which of these truths is real? You know, is the youth pastor painting this rosy picture because that's the picture he wants people to have. And is Leah painting this sobering, isolated picture because that's what she wants to have? I think probably the truth lies in the middle between those two. Both those things can be true because you can have friends and still be an isolated person. Uh, We see that all the time in today's society. And the church is one place where we should be able to find friends and support and encouragement. So that's a great lesson for all of us. Thank you so much for sharing more background about this story. Again, if you haven't read this, you haven't gotten the book yet, go grab yourself a copy. It's very, very thought provoking. And uh, I I think we need to start thinking a little deeper about these things. Yeah. Thank you so much for doing this. And uh you know, it's so unusual to talk about true crime in light of one's faith. I always tell people I've written two true crime books, both about victims I knew. So it doesn't pay to be my friend. <laughs> well, I appreciate you joining me in in my my odd little corner of the true crime universe. The true crime faith-based universe. Yeah. There you go. Thanks again, Karen. Thank you. Bye-bye. I want us to investigate a little deeper into Exodus chapter 34, verses 6 and 7. And I'm going to read from the New Living Translation. The Lord passed in front of Moses, calling out, Yahweh, the Lord, the God of compassion and mercy. I am slow to anger and filled with unfailing love and faithfulness. I lavish unfailing love to a thousand generations. I forgive iniquity, rebellion, and sin. But I do not excuse the guilty. I lay the sins of the parents upon their children and grandchildren. The entire family is affected, even children in the third and fourth generations. This is one of the most quoted passages in the Bible, being referenced in other Bible passages over 20 times. God is proclaimed to be amazingly loving and forgiving. Then comes the but. He is also just and unwilling to simply overlook sin. He forgives, yes, but there must be consequences for sin. I chose this particular translation because I love how it explains that when someone sins, the entire family is affected. I often talk about the ripple effects of sin and of crime, and that certainly applies here. The idea that there may exist a so-called murder gene immediately made me think of this passage in a new way. 
What if that effect is more than just having people look at us differently or judging us for a relative's misdeeds? What if the idea that these sins are visited upon children and the grandchildren, even into the third and fourth generations, is an expression of how our genetic code can express itself? Could that be one layer of God's intended meaning here? Of course, God knew all about the science of genetics before we ever started to figure it out. So I think that that is definitely a possible layer of meaning because God is just so multidimensional. It's no wonder that his word is as well. I would love to know what you think of that idea. So send me an email at Lori, that's L-O-R-I, at theunlovelytruth.com or message me on social media. I just love it when people are willing to have those hard but impactful conversations. The Unlovely Truth is written and produced by me, Lori Morrison. Music is by Neil Cortex and artwork is by Shelby Highland. See you all next time.